So as we stand a prayer, we pray, Heavenly Father, that we may now see in Scripture Christ being made known to us. We pray that we may wonder anew at such salvation that he has won for us. But not just wonder, but may go out into this week living the implications of what we have learnt. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, please do be seated. Let me say, Mike, thank you very much indeed for the warmth of your welcome. It's a great uh, thrill for me to be uh, with you and amongst you. And uh, there are various faces uh, this morning that I've recognised, that I've uh, met before, and it's great to be amongst friends. You might want to turn back to the passage Sarah read for us from Romans chapter 5. It's on page 1132. 1132 of the Church Bibles. Our past affects our future. What has happened to us has a significant impact on what will happen to us. It's true environmentally. Our past consumption of fossil fuels will have an impact on future climate. Our past affects our future. It's true financially. Years without making pension provision in the past will affect our future retirement, we're told. Our past affects our future. It's true medically. The inoculations taken in the past affect my immunity to some diseases in the future. Our past affects our future. And if you're to fall asleep in the next couple of minutes and therefore not hear the rest of this sermon, then let me say this is the summary of Romans chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. Our past affects our future. And it's true spiritually. Now, I know that you're in the middle of a sermon series from Romans chapter 5. Well, the story so far up to chapter 5 in Romans goes something like this. From chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul has proved that all people, all without exception, whether morally decent people, whether non-Jews who had not had the Scriptures, or whether Jews who had had all of the Old Testament, that all people rightly are under God's wrath now, and face his judgment on a day of wrath to come. And every mouth is silenced. There's no excuse. There are no mitigating circumstances, no diminished responsibility. There can be no appeal. I read not long back of a woman in the United States who had been convicted of persistent shoplifting. And she was now suing her mother for poor parenting because it was her fault that uh, she had brought her up badly and it had led to this persistent habit of shoplifting. Well, I may be wrong, but it seems to me like she's wanting to make excuses for what she's done. But before God, every mouth is zipped, all without excuse, and therefore all should one day stand before the bar of God and on the last day be pronounced guilty and sentenced to eternal trouble and distress. But, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, said that the word but that comes in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 is one of the greatest words of the Bible. He's right, but, because Paul goes on to explain God's gracious means of altering our eternal situation. Jesus' substitutionary death, his sacrifice of atonement, means that those with faith like Abraham can enjoy all the blessings that Paul lists in Romans chapter 5. The chapter begins, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, with a therefore. 
Paul summarises the solution, therefore since we've been justified by faith, and then from verses 1 to 8 he explains some of the blessings that come as a result. Peace with God. Standing in grace. Hope that won't disappoint. And all of that because God has poured out his love into our hearts. Remarkable blessings. Well, in verses 9 to 11, Paul follows the pattern of the first half of the, of the chapter and repeats it by telling that for those who are Christian, he spells out our past, therefore what our future will be, and therefore what we should be in the present. And we're going to look briefly at each. We're going to look first at our past. Now you'll see in the Romans chapter 5, you'll see that verse 9 is a parallel statement to verse 1 there. In verse 1, since we have been justified by faith. In verse 9, since we have been justified by his blood. Now those are givens for the Apostle Paul here. Faith like Abraham's, verse 1, and the blood of Jesus, verse 9, the blood of Jesus at the cross, those are the ingredients that lead to someone being justified. In verse 1, the emphasis is on our response, faith, that's trusting God's promise. In verse 9, the emphasis is on God's action, the blood of Jesus. Now we'll see why Paul switches in verse 9 from our faith to Jesus' blood in a moment. But put those things together. That is the blood of Jesus, that's his life given at the cross, and the response of faith, and you have the vital cocktail, the vital ingredients that leads to someone being justified. And if you're a Christian here this morning, then that is what has happened to you. Past tense, you have been justified. Now you'll see verse 9, it was all because of the blood of Jesus. So that we can't forget the cost involved. Back in chapter 3, Paul said that it was a gift freely given. Yes, free to us, but costly to God. It was a very big thing indeed. Maybe like us, you're in the process at the moment of buying Christmas presents. They will be freely given on Christmas Day. But the bank statement and the visa bill in January will remind us that though they may have been freely given to our children on Christmas Day... They cost us. Justified through the blood of Jesus, we can't forget the cost. And neither can we forget our dependence. You see, if Jesus' blood had not been shed, then there would be no way that you and I could be justified. That was what chapters 1 to 3 of Romans was all about. Paul was proving it. There was no action that we could take but whereby which we could justify ourselves. It humbles us, doesn't it? We remember the cost. We remember our dependence. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, verse 9, and yet it was also through the response of faith. Verse 1, you see, the death of Jesus doesn't work for everyone, kind of willy-nilly. It's not like family allowance. You know, a benefit that every family gets, however well off or not they are. The benefit of the death of Jesus only comes to those who respond in faith. But mix those two, and only those two, mix those two ingredients, 
and they become the recipe that leads to us having been justified past tense. So let me again say that if you're trusting the death of Jesus, faith in his blood, then you have been, past tense, justified. Now justified is one of those big, important Bible words. And it may well be that there are some here this morning who have heard that term, but they don't really know what it means. There may be some here this morning who are very new to Christian things and you've no idea what it means. Well, over the last couple of years, my eldest son has become mad keen on cricket. So this week, with the Ashes starting, it's a very big week in our household. But as his interest has grown, so he's had to come to learn a new vocabulary. Beamers and Yorkers and Googlies. They're words that just go with the game. Well, so as Christians, there are words that we need to learn and understand. Justified is one of them. Justified. It means to be declared right with God. It means to be given a status before God as if we'd done nothing wrong. With God having no anger towards us and therefore no punishment for us. The word comes actually from the law courts. From the world of Kavanaugh QC and Judge John Deed, but it's not like his court. The picture is more something like this. I'm in the dock. The defendant. God is the perfect judge who rules the court. The charge against me is that I'm under sin. And there is plenty of evidence. Do you know that old line? If you knew all the sin in my heart, you wouldn't be sitting there listening to me this morning. (laughs) And if I knew all the sin in your heart, I wouldn't be standing here speaking to you. You see, there's plenty of evidence And the judgment should be in the future guilty and the sentence should be on the last day wrath which in chapter 2 was described as trouble and distress. Elsewhere in the Bible, hell. Torment and anguish. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are the words Jesus uses. And it should be for all eternity. And yet the judge is able to deliver his judgment and say not guilty. For me. Case thrown out of court. And not on, on, not on some legal technicality, not through some clever defence work, but as if there was no case to answer. As if there is no evidence against me. As if I should have never been in court in the first place. In the right. Justified, as the old line goes. Just as if I'd never sinned. The question, of course, is this. How can God be right to declare me in the right when I'm blatantly in the wrong? Follow that? I'll repeat it. How can God be right to declare me in the right when I am so blatantly in the wrong? You see, if I'm in the wrong, God can't be right to say I'm right. How could that be? The answer, verse 9, that little word, blood. Justified by his blood. Yes, we are totally dependent on it. Without it, the sentence could only be punishment. But Jesus, willing to face the anger of God and take the death sentence from God, in my place. It means God's justice, sin being punished, is maintained. And yet, at the same time, I can be declared right. 
And that, says Paul, for believers, that's our past. We have been justified. It's an amazing thing that for we who are believers, the judgment of the last day has actually already been declared for us. It's an amazing thing. Paul, in verse 10, changes the picture, uses another metaphor. And it's echoing the language he's already used in verse 1 of peace. He moves from legal standing to personal relationship. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled. It's the language of two parties coming back together again. Sometimes we speak, don't we, of marriage reconciliation. Two who had been apart being brought back together. We were enemies of God and therefore separated from him. But we have now been, notice again in verse 10, past tense, have been reconciled. And in verse 10 Paul again says, it was nothing that we've actually done. Last week you'll have noted that uh, in verse 6 Paul describes we were powerless We were enemies. We were on opposing sides. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Notice Paul won't in verse 9 or verse 10, he won't let us for a moment congratulate ourselves. We were reconciled, verse 10, through the death of God's Son. And that's our past. Justified. Reconciled. But for Paul... Our past affects our future. Indeed, that's the very point he reminds us of our past. Justified, reconciled. Our past, therefore, second, our future. And you can see the principle as it's stated there in verse 9. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Paul saying our future is secure. The day of God's wrath is still to come. Twice in chapter 2, Paul spoke of it as of a day. A day of God's wrath. The day when Jesus will return and he will be the judge of all people. Except, except verse 9, we who have been justified will be saved from that wrath. I know elsewhere in the New Testament it says that we have been saved, that we are being saved. Here, Paul, we will be saved. It means that in the sense, in the future, we will be safe, we will be secure, we will be spared. I don't know what you think up to now has been the most terrifying day in all human history. Hiroshima, Nagasaki... There is no doubt in the New Testament that the most terrifying day of all human history is still in the future. Judgment Day. But for us, it's Salvation Day. We'll be saved from it. It's only through Jesus, only through him, says Paul. But you and I have nothing to fear for that day. We won't even go into court on that day. The usher will say, what are you doing here? Your case case was dealt with ages ago. It was dealt with at the cross. You have been justified. 
And so we'll be saved from any judgment, saved from any wrath on the last day. Now can I say, this may be you this morning, can I say I have met many Christians, many, many Christians, who have not quite got that clear. And deep down within them is a lurking fear that something they did in the past, some secret sin that even their husbands or wives don't know about, they're afraid will come back to haunt them. They're afraid that God will bring it up. And so we're not really sure that they will be okay on that day. We needn't fear. Our past justification means we will be saved. And here's great news indeed. No sin, past, present or future, can change that verdict. We have been justified. We will be saved. Or it may be that you've met people who aren't yet Christians yet, and they say something like, oh, okay, I'll take my chances with God when I meet him. I'm sure I'll have done enough good things in the ledger to be okay on that day. Can I say that is the greatest of follies? Because the only way to be safe, saved on that day, is to be those who are justified. But look more carefully with me at verse 9 and you can see that the argument Paul uses is a how much more argument. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And the argument goes a little bit like this. If God has done the difficult bit, getting you justified, you can be absolutely sure that he'll finish the job. If God has already declared you right with him, how much more can you be sure that you'll be spared his anger? Have you seen those adverts that tell you that uh, for £99 as a deposit, you can move into a new house for Christmas? Or for the deposit of any old car, you can drive away with a brand new car this afternoon? Not long back, we bought some new living room furniture. We were in the shop, we'd chosen the settee, we decided on the fabric, and the shop said, we need a 50% deposit today. Well, once you'd paid 50% deposit on our sofa, there was no way we'd waste that deposit and not go back with the rest of the money and collect the settee. Well, in verse 9, the deposit was as it were, not £99, not any old banger, not even 50%. God gave the blood of his son to justify us. Do you think that he'll not finish the job? Indeed, verse 10 explains it a little bit further with a second how much more argument. For if we were, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It's inconceivable that having been the beneficiaries of Jesus' death, that we won't be the beneficiaries of his life and so be saved from God's anger on the last day. Can I say this little section of Romans is meant to give us real assurance. Paul wants us to be assured for the future. 
And we need it. You and I need that assurance this morning. And I'll tell you why. It's because we live in a, in a period of tension. I don't mean political tension or economic tension or even environmental tension. Spiritually, we live in a tension. You see, Paul has said in verses 1 to 8 that having become Christians, we have received some brilliant benefits already. And they are brilliant, aren't they? It is a brilliant benefit to be at peace with God today. It's a wonderful benefit to stand in God's grace today. But, but we don't have everything yet. So in verse 2 of chapter 5, we don't yet have the glory of God. Can I say politely that fullwood is not glory? It's very nice, it's very pleasant, but it's not glory. Indeed, Paul has said that whilst we don't have the glory of God yet, in verse 3 we suffer in the here and now. And that's true, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I'd be surprised, because I don't know you, but I'd be very surprised if in a congregation like this this morning there aren't a number of people who are experiencing illness, bereavement, pain, sadness, disappointment, hurt, frustration. Indeed, I reckon that's true for every single one of us at some point this morning. No, we haven't got everything yet. We're not in glory yet. But we can be sure that because of what we have, our future is secure. The future's bright, not orange, but salvation. So instead of fear for the future, we have real confidence for the future. And we ought to use verses 9 and 10 to minister to ourselves. What God has done in our lives, justified us, reconciled, it's so big that you can be totally certain that he'll do the last bit. He'll close the deal. He'll finish things off. You can be absolutely sure. Somerset Maughan's dying words to his nephew Robin are tragic. He said, I have lived a wretched life and it's now the end. And I'm scared of death. But you and I needn't be. Not scared at all. Because it would be inconceivable that God would let his son die, let his son's blood be shed, only to muck it up at the end. So can I say to you this morning that in the midst of the real sufferings of this world, and they are real, aren't they? in the sufferings of your life and those of those you know, those sufferings will make you very aware that you're not yet in glory. So let me encourage you. Remember what Jesus' death has achieved for you so that you can be utterly sure you are safe to be brought to the last day to glory. Our past, our future, And then in verse 11, Paul gives us the application as we see our present. Here's what Paul thinks our past that guarantees our future should lead us to do in the present. Yes, we look back to what has happened our past. We look forward to what will happen our future. And so what do we do now? 
How do we respond now? Not only this, but we also rejoice, present tense, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I reckon that at one level, Paul means that when we remember our past as it guarantees our future, we're going to go, wow! Or we'll go, hooray! When we won the Ashes 18 months ago on that Monday afternoon at the Oval, my son kept walking around the house saying, yes, yes, yes. He was utterly rejoicing at what had happened. What has happened is the guarantee of what will happen. Now, you may not be of the temperament or personality to go, yes, but you ought to be rejoicing. Let me ask you, do you sometimes wake up in the morning and not want to rejoice in God? Or am I the only person here this morning who has had that experience on a Monday morning? When that happens, on those days, I need to minister verses 9 and 10 to myself. I remind myself of what God has done to me, therefore what he will do to me, and that ought to bring about the response in me that goes, wow! Hooray! I rejoice! And I'll do it even in the midst of real and sometimes horrible suffering. But actually Paul may mean something more than just we make an acknowledgement of praise and thanksgiving for what he's done. Because that little word that's translated in verse 11, rejoice, has already been used by Paul in Romans. Turn a page back, if you will, to Romans chapter 3 and verse 27. In verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3, Paul has been explaining how the death of Jesus brings about our justification. And then in his response, he says this, verse 27, where then is boasting, it is excluded. Where is the boasting? We have nothing to boast about ourselves. We have contributed nothing to our rescue. We have nothing to boast in and of ourselves. But that word boast is exactly the same word that's translated in Romans 5.11 as rejoice. And therefore Paul may well be saying, no, we don't boast in ourselves. Pride must be replaced by humility. Boasting in ourselves must be replaced by dependence on God. But in chapter 5 we do boast. We do boast, not in and of ourselves. We boast or rejoice in God. And therefore it may well have this flavour. No, we don't speak about or brag about how good we are. But we will speak about how good God is. We won't push ourselves forward, but we will push the Lord forward. And boast in him. And therefore in the coming week, Yeah, we'll rejoice together as we sing great hymns of praise on Sunday. We'll rejoice in our hearts day by day for what he's done and will do. But we'll also be boasting as we speak of him. Telling people how brilliant he is because of what he's done for us and what he will do for us. So as we draw to a close, let me ask you this. Is there someone you could pray about today so that you might have an opportunity to boast in God about in this week ahead by talking to them 
about the Lord Jesus and the Gospel. It would be a good thing to pray today, wouldn't it? Lord, is there someone this week you could give me an opportunity to, to boast about you in the right way, boast about you? And you know, in my experience, when I pray that prayer on a Sunday, blow me down, but there an opportunity comes sometime in the week. And I sometimes don't want to pray that prayer because I know God will answer it. And I'm nervous. But I needn't be. A chance to boast in him. Now, I needn't be nervous about doing it. And I shouldn't be ashamed about doing it. Not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Our past. Let me gently ask this morning, can you say that you have been justified and reconciled? If not, why not talk to Mike on the way out this morning? He'll tell you what you could do to sort that situation out. But if you can, our past, justified, reconciled, it guarantees our future. We will be saved, safe on the last day. And therefore, what other could be for our present response? And to rejoice, to boast in God. Let's bow our heads and pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we want to rejoice in you. We want to boast in you. And do so because of all the brilliant things you have done for us through the Lord Jesus in justifying us and reconciling us and so giving us total confidence for the future that we will be safe and secure on the day Jesus comes. We pray, Heavenly Father, that our confidence in what you have done and in what you will do will so grow that we, even this week, may be people who rejoice and boast in you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.